This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over 25 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. How did the U.S. government go from being a digital pioneer to a digital laggard in many places? Why do governments need digital design and data capabilities in-house and cannot simply outsource these skills? And how can the U.S. federal government rebuild its digital capabilities, and truly transform how it does business? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Jen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm delighted to be here. So, Jen, what prompted you to write Recoding America? And who is the intended audience of the book? Well, I see a lot of positive changes happening in government, and I also see barriers to those changes scaling. And I think that a lot more people are going to have to understand how government really operates today um, and also how it could operate if if we want the benefits of those different approaches. So um, maybe it's helpful to start with an example of what I mean by a different approach, because it really isn't just tech or code that I'm talking about here. Um, I tell the story in the book of the team that had to pick up the ball after healthcare.gov, the next big law that came down from Congress at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services was MACRA. MACRA was designed to pay doctors more for better quality care. And of course, the impetus behind it was that would improve the quality of care that Medicare patients got and reduce the cost. Um, But the doctors were so frustrated and the only thing that they hated more than the systems that they used was the thought of having to use whole new systems that were also going to be confusing. And so they were threatening to leave the program to not take Medicare patients in very high numbers, which would, of course, degrade the quality of care that patients were getting. And so this team really knew they had to do something differently. They had to make it easier for doctors They were supposed to explain to doctors how this program would work. First choice you have to make as a doctor is, are you in a private practice or part of a group? And they are told by the policy team that there are nine different definitions of a group. Now, that's going to make things very difficult for them to understand. And it's also going to make the software that they would eventually build extremely complex and fragile. This team pushes back and says, we really need to simplify this. Uh, The line that uh, one of the team says is, I understand it's complicated, but it has to make sense to a person. And they really negotiate um, the policy team and the delivery team. They don't get down to one definition of a group, but they do get down to two, which is much, much better. 
um, and is going to make this much easier on doctors. Um, some doctors will be exempt from this program if they take very few Medicare patients. Well, the way that the policy team is interpreting the law, they're insisting that delivery team make all doctors go through the program for the first year, then determine if you're under the threshold for eligibility, and then exempt those doctors, which is technically the most accurate way to get the right people in the program, but going to be incredibly frustrating for those who have to adopt all new software, a whole new way of working, only to then be excused from it the following year, which they kind of already knew they would be. And this is a fight that this team wins. They, they uh, After much negotiation, uh, they convince the powers that be above them to let them exempt doctors based on the prior year's data. They end up fighting to ship software that really does make sense to a person. And when it launches, it's on, on time, it's under budget, and doctors find it so easy to use that they're actually confused. You know, the call center is braced for all these complaints, but instead they're getting calls from doctors saying, "I'm uh, this is so easy, I'm, it's scary. Like, I'm not sure if I'm on the right site. And they keep doctors from leaving the program, which is just really remarkable. And I, I think what this shows is it's not just sort of the coding of the site that went wrong with healthcare.gov and went right with MACRA. It's people doing what will honor Congress's intent instead of exactly what they were told to do by the letter of the law. And to do that, I think they had to make some smart decisions that others thought were really out of their lane, but they were doing it in the interests of the people that they were trying to serve. And that's the kind of thing that I want to draw people's attention to, because it does make government that makes sense to people. I mean, one thing I noted in your book, uh, Jen, was that you do a wonderful job of relaying these anecdotes, these stories that are real world. And the guts of some of the people you profile to go out of their lane is just, um, it, it's really compelling. And I think it does show a little bit of common sense, to be honest. I know that's a, a pejorative to some, but it really, one of the things I really enjoyed were those stories. Um, the fact, especially the ones where they were able to uh, bring together a consensus that made things focus on the user's need, our citizenry, rather than just feeding the bureaucracy. Um, so just to, if we could, just to walk folks through, what do we mean when we talk about your title has it, recoding, coding? What is coding? What do coders do? And how does it fit into the larger discipline of what we would call digital technology? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my use of coding in the title is probably a little bit of a bait and switch. You know, um, you know, I hear from a lot of people, particularly people in tech, that we need more coders and they mean more computer programmers in government. And I'm trying to make the point that more coders are certainly helpful, but they're not going to do us all that much good if we don't have the disciplines of design and product management as core competencies of government. Um, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, you know, coders are sort of the top of the heap. <laughs> you know, they run the companies. The companies are often founded by coders. Um, but in government, they're sort of at the bottom of a very large and complex hierarchy. And as much as I do think, you know, coders who actually just, you know, write the code um, are needed, they're not going to be successful in making government better if they do sort of what I described before, just exactly what they're told. Um, uh, you know, w without 
having the ability to really thoughtfully design what is being built. So coding is really for me in the title because I want people to think about a fundamental recoding of how we think about government more than the actual typing of lines of code into a computer. Jen, what is product management and how does it differ from project management? This is a a really key distinction that is very often lost. And in some ways, if people take only one thing away, it could be this. Um, Project managers are hugely important and good ones are extremely valuable to uh, this business of making government work for people. Um, But it is distinct. So project management is the art of getting things done. Product management is the art of deciding what to do in the first place. So project management is really critical when your job is to find all the requirements and fulfill all the requirements, because if that's your framework for shipping a digital service, you are going to have a lot of requirements. I mean, I, you know, I think people on, in your community know that there's, you know, often thousands, even, even, you know, over 10,000 requirements in a large technology project. Um, But you, and you're going to need a lot of project managers, but, If you have product managers, you're doing a sort of layer of design on top of that that says, we're going to get the right things done well instead of all the things done poorly. We're going to make choices about what goes into this product instead of just doing all of it. And both of those disciplines need to work well together, but we really need not to do that, um, you know, every possible thing all at once in a sort of undifferentiated, unprioritized way, because that makes software that is extremely hard for people to actually use and does, you know, what I talked about earlier, it alienates and frustrates people. Just to continue down, just to give us a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about technology, digital technology, Jen, I was hoping you could spend some time telling us about the tools and techniques uh, digital technologists and user designers and folks like yourself and your background, what are these tools and techniques that you employ? Well, of course, the first one is just, you know, being able to pull back and have an opinion on what the software is going to do. But I do think that there, um, we often miss uh the ways in which digital teams bring something to the table that has actually nothing to do with digital. So uh, oftentimes you'll see these teams rely very heavily on uh, sticky notes and, you know, white uh, paper on the walls where they're drawing things out. And what they're often doing is trying to put in a way that you can see and understand the actual process so that we can pull back and look at it and decide where the bottlenecks are. Um, in this, this, this team that did the amazing work on MACRA, the, the program that they shipped was called uh, QPP, the Quality Payment Program. Um, we saw this, this happen in ways that really brought the policy team and the tech teams together. So you know, one example was a woman named Natalie Cates was working on the team, and she noticed that all the policy teams themselves weren't necessarily coordinating. So one team had required doctors to make a decision at a certain point in the process, But that decision relied on data that was not coming to those doctors until after the decision was supposed to be made. The the team that had decided when the data would get to them wasn't talking to the team that was deciding when they would need this feedback from the doctors. And so she took over this empty conference room and divided its walls into 12 different sections, one for each month. And all the policy people came in and she had them write on post-it notes each action that the medical practices were supposed to take. 
And each communication that the doctors received would go on different colored notes. And then they would draw lines between these things to see where the dependencies were. And you could quickly see that, in fact, there were other policy decisions that were conflicting with each other. And it wasn't until you get all that stuff on the wall that and you and people are there together in real time that that's visible. Um, another time, they they in this long hallway that they painted with whiteboard paint, a different member of the team had these dry erase markers and started showing that you know in the beginning we have ten different options for providers, and then there are t- ten different options that stem from those ten options, and so on and so on. And then you're really in the realm of like hundreds and hundreds of uh, thousands and thousands of decisions that these doctors are being asked to make. And um, Yadira Sanchez, who is the longtime public servant at, at CMS, who, who was champions this work and has done such a fantastic job, you know, told me it, she could see as these things were going on the wall and this sort of the wall got covered with this just inc- intricate, giant map of decisions she could see these light bulbs going off over the heads of the policy people going, oh, now I get it. This is really not going to be implementable. It's much too complex. But these tools are tools of, of, of markers and flip charts. They're, they're, and they're incredibly effective to get the policy into a way that it can be coded you know, um, uh, to make sense. And these are tools that I think really bring people together instead of drive people who are skeptical of each other's domain apart. Mm, That's an excellent point. And your book, along with the anecdotes and the stories, the real life stories of how government works, or in some cases, unfortunately, how it doesn't work, you introduce concepts, Jen. And and I'd like to talk about some of those concepts. And in particular, the, the difference between agile and waterfall as two distinctive software development methodologies. I was wondering if you could tell us what is Agile and how does it differ from Waterfall? And would you juxtapose, if you could, the key cultural differences between these two approaches? Yeah, I think it is very much a key concept. And I think people will initially hear that and think that I'm talking about Agile software development versus Waterfall software development. And that is true, but ultimately I'm talking about a waterfall structure and way of thinking that is much bigger than tech. Um, And in fact, I think the reason it's, we don't think of it as a waterfall outside of tech is it's really like the air we breathe. You know, it's, if if you're a fish in the water, you don't even know the water that you're in, right? Like the notion that all delivery teams are supposed to find all the requirements and fulfill all the requirements and not exercise their judgment and make these active design choices to simplify, that's the waterfall in in action. It's saying we are a very large hierarchy and at every step down in the hierarchy, the best thing to do is simply exactly what we've been told from the folks above. Um, And certainly in agile software development, that's not what happens. It's not sort of a one-way ticket um, from people at the top to people at the bottom where information flows down, Um, requirements slow down, power flows down, insights slow down, and they don't flow back up. When we have good agile development, we have sort of a a circle of build, measure, learn, where the policy people are in that cycle and actually contributing and learning from the what the people who are doing the implementation are learning. So agile is a good software development methodology, and I do think we should use it more 
but I'm not sure that agile is necessarily the opposite of waterfall in the larger sense that I'm talking about. I think the opposite of waterfall in the larger sense is empowering public servants to make choices, design choices in particular, that result in government that makes sense to people. And that means we actually have to have conversation that goes back up the hierarchy in order to, as, as Clay Shirky would say, in order to learn, he says the waterfall methodology amounts to a pledge by all parties not to learn anything during the actual work, whether it's software development or policy or operations, um, so many areas of government, we need to be learning while we do, act, do the work. And we need that learning to get back to the people who can make decisions and they need to be able to listen. So Jen, I understand that you were three years into the founding and leading of Code for America, and then something pulled you to federal service. Would you tell us more about your public service journey and what brought you to D.C.? And then could you give us a sense of what surprised you most about your time in federal service? Um, well, my, my my journey to public service, of course, had started by telling other people to do public service for America. Um, and ironically, um, when I was asked to come, my first answer was no. I was asked to come while I was on a trip to London. I was visiting the very nascent government digital service there, which was very much my inspiration. Um, and I was just um, amazed at, at what this team was doing in London, uh, in the center of government, um, redoing all uh, these websites um, in, in ways that, you know, as you know, I value in ways that make sense to people. Um, and while I was in the building getting a tour, I got an email from Todd Park, who was the second chief technology officer of the U.S. saying, I, I want to meet with you. I want to, you know, can I, I'm coming out to San Francisco, please clear your calendar. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm not in San Francisco. I'm, but we talked on phone and he really had seen Code for America and wanted need to come help with what had just begun as the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. But because I was there at the Government Digital Service, when he called, I said, I, I'm sorry that I can't join, but I also think that what you need to do is try a version of this GDS in the United States. And um, the reason I couldn't come was that I had a daughter in uh, California that I could not bring out to, to DC. And um, was going to be very challenging for me. But, you know, ultimately, of course, Todd convinced me to come and made it possible for me to split my time between the coasts. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obviously enormously glad that he did because it would be quite uh, hypocritical of me to tell everyone else to do public service and not have done it myself. Um, you know, when I, when, I, when I did finally get to, uh, to the White House, there were people like Dan Tagarlini, who was head of GSA at the time, and Haley Van Dyke and Cara DeFrias and Steve Van Rokel, who were already working on something they called Project X, which, which was not all that different, really, from this, this idea of GDS. There were some differences. There, there's sort of a long story of how USDS came to be that I won't go into here, but I will say that the thing that surprised me most is that when and I should have known this, of course, is that when the chief technology officer of the United States says, yes, come do this thing, stand up this unit in the White House that will have um, uh, that will have technologists in it. You know, you think you're just going to do it. But in fact, of course, you're going still to convince people to do it. And that was the that was so much harder than I thought it would be. Um, 
the, the, the need to align so many different folks to get anything done, again, shouldn't have been a challenge since I've been, you know, helping these folks do this in local government through Code for America. But the reality of how hard it is um, became just, you know, real, uh, real for me in ways that make me always, always have so much more empathy for public servants, having been one than I would if I'd never gone in. You know, Jen, I was wondering, because it, it, it's a nice transition into my next question, because um, I didn't know this until I read your book. I, I hadn't refer, hadn't heard this before, but uh, some refer to the period between 1995 and 2008 as lost years in federal IT, U.S. federal government IT. Um, and I was wondering if, 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 if it if it's hard in a lot of ways because of that sort of lot, those sort of lost years and what the impact of it was and how little tech expertise we have in government. And I think you related to, or maybe I did in reading this to the Kodak curse. Could you give us a sense of why these were lost years and what the impact were from that? Yeah, we have Mar- Michael Garland to thank for that phrase. Um, an article called A History of IT Acquisition Reform. And I don't know Michael, but if anybody knows him, please introduce me. I want to thank him for writing such a great article. Um, but uh, there, I think there's really there's really two things that happened all around the same time. Um, the first was that uh, digital got caught up in the outsourcing boom. Um, we decided to lay a lot of people off and make sure that um, we only were hiring people in government to do what they thought was inherently governmental work. Um, you know, in the in the early '90s, um, with the Federal Workforce Restructuring Act, I believe, and, and a bunch of other um, impacts, where we just decided it was better to take you know to hire contractors to do things. And I think in some sense, it was just timing that um, technology was coming of age just then and and becoming more and more important to us. Um, But also you had in, uh, I think you have a way of thinking uh, that comes from very deep in our culture and the cultures that have preceded us that impacted why we didn't think that technology was inherently governmental work. And I think one of the things I want people to take away from is that it is some parts of technology development really are inherently governmental, not not all of them. So in in 1995, you had the Klinger-Cohen Act. Um, Klinger and Cohen wanted to elevate ownership of the digital agenda to an institution with the power to do something about it, OMB. It was great that GSA was taking a role, but GSA was really seeing it as just how do we get better prices, for instance, at the time, uh, how do we get better prices on, on technology? And the deputy director of OMB at the time really pushed back and said, we don't want this as part of OMB's agenda. And among his reasons was that the contemplated responsibilities are operational in nature and do not fit with the institution's policy role. I think this deputy director had good reasons for saying this. Um, and the person happens to be a really wonderful public servant and has been very gracious and forgiving uh, to me about picking on him for this statement. But I do think it derives from this sense that implementation is sort of second class work that the important people in government do policy and the people who do the implementation of that policy are, 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 are less important. There's this idea in the, in the um, UK government service that there's the intellectuals and the mechanicals. And just at that moment that technology was becoming the thing that was going to profoundly change our society, I think 
that people in powerful positions in policy in U.S. government sort of mistook the changes um, for simply a shift in the tools of implementation and therefore said, you know, let implementation people do this. And I think after these years and healthcare.gov and all that we've seen, it's really time to recognize that policy and implementation cannot be very neatly separated if we want both of them to work. Um, we have this mindset that says we have to outsource everything technical um, and we call it the Kodak curse, or at least I heard that term from Mark Hobson, a brilliant acquisition professional, because it was Kodak who originally said, let's outsource all our IT. And of course, there are probably many reasons that Kodak went out of business, but many believe that their um, sort of shoving of technology to vendors was part of it. And, and we've done more than that in government. We haven't just shoved sort of back office We've said that vendors must be in charge of everything, even the things that are the core ways that we interact with the public. And I think um, vendors are very important to the ecosystem. I am in no way saying that we should not outsource or we shouldn't have great relationships with our vendors. Um, but we do have to re-examine this notion that core competencies in digital don't belong in government. Why did the launch of the healthcare.gov website fail? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report, Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner, breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. So, Jen, I'd like to transition because this sort of anecdote illustrates what your book is conveying is so important and the fact that these techniques and tools and capabilities, the digital competencies need to be sort of rebuilt in government. And that's the perspective of why government IT projects fail. And I was wondering if we could use healthcare.gov as an example, and maybe you could share with us why the development and launch of the website failed. How was it fixed? And I really want to get you to talk about the the lessons learned from the agency responsible, CMS, and how they change and do technology and innovation. Healthcare Dev is a great example, of course, talking about what went wrong would take us many more hours than we have. And, you know, the OIG report from HHS on this is quite good. It's very thorough. The, the team did a wonderful job. I think that what it doesn't dig into, because it sort of 
in some ways in government, we have trouble even imagining the possibility would be the choice to have um, started with something small. Um, and that's a product management choice, uh, back to your earlier question. Um, the folks that came in to help out, you know, had asked that question, you know, why, why couldn't we start with something that works for the majority of users, make sure that thing works well, and then over time, add the functionality to, uh, to serve these edge cases. And there were thousands of edge cases, of course, a very complex law. And they were told that's illegal. Um, I don't think it's illegal. I think that's a misinterpretation of law. And I do think that it is, in fact, um, the evidence shows that, you know, starting smaller, um, making some smart product management choices up front is sort of the only way that big, complex technology projects do work, especially, you know, on the day that they launch. If that's our expectation, that they work the day we they launch, they are probably not going to work for all people. On the other hand, I'm not saying we shouldn't have served those people. Oftentimes, the people who represent those edge cases are the people who need our help most. Um, they may, in fact, be better served by the call centers and the in-person service centers that we had arranged for because their situations are more complicated. They might want a real human being there to help them through it. And what happens when the website launches and it works for no one, or I believe the day, first day it worked for eight people out of the hundreds of thousands who were trying to use it, eight is not enough, then the call centers and in-person service centers who are meant for those edge cases are swamped with everybody else and we get the worst of all worlds. So, I mean, essentially, you know, these are choices that have to become move into the realm of possible. We have to push back on those interpreting policy and saying that that is illegal, which it isn't. Um, and, you know, I, I think we see that today, too. Um, the IRS uh, is, you know, uh, released their report about direct file, um, which would make it, you know, possible for people to have a sort of intuit like, you know, TurboTax kind of interface to government, but one that the government is running. And uh, I saw in the Washington Post an old, uh, a former IRS commissioner saying, this is only going to be good if it works for everybody right up front. You can't do this in a, in a half-baked way. I don't think making something that works for a subset of users and then incrementally adding the functionality for those other users over time is half-baked. And I am very excited that the current leadership of the IRS is behind that and championing it. I was wondering as a follow-up with that great anecdote about the lessons learned, and why is the waterfall approach, uh, why is it so prevalent in how the U.S. government and how their agencies approach IT? We're built as a bureaucracy uh, and a giant hierarchy. It's built into everything, the way, you know, agencies relate to uh, the White House, the way um, that federalism works. So it's just, it's hard to imagine structures that aren't built that way. But there are ways to work within a hierarchy that allow for um, learning and iteration. And it's going to be very hard work because it is so ingrained in how we think, but I think it's work we have to do. Yeah, your uh, book does a wonderful job uh, of, of conveying real life stories uh, about some of the really interesting things that are happening in the federal government around IT, and some that are positive and 
and some that are not so positive. And I, I'm wondering, I throw out this term, concrete boats. I was hoping you could tell us the story of the concrete boats and, and how it underscores some of the challenges in federal IT. And why do government leaders sometimes abdicate accountability just to avoid being blamed? Yeah, um, I don't I don't love the negative stories as much because I want to celebrate wonderful public servants. But I will tell this. Um, I was working in the White House um, to try to set up the USDS and we were doing sort of these proto USDS um, projects. One of them was with the Veterans Administration on the Veterans Benefit Management System. I had two folks come in to, to help do what we call a discovery sprint, just a couple of weeks to sort of figure out what's going on and where the opportunities are for change. And um, the very first day we were there with this um, person who I, in the book, I call him Kevin, um, who was a very high level person at the VA at the time, who was there to help us you know, understand what was the the challenges that we were supposed to help fix. And I kept asking him questions about the system. Why were these choices made on VBMS and not those? And his answers kept saying, kept being, those were not our decisions. You'll have to ask the business people. You'll have to ask the business people. And eventually um, I said, you know, why aren't you willing to discuss the, you know, the business choices here? And he said, I've spent my career teaching my team not to have an opinion about business requirements. And if they tell us to build a concrete boat, I'll build a concrete boat. And by that, I think he meant if you want to give us 6,700 requirements and tell us to take 10 years to go build those, we'll do that, even if at the end of that, the boat won't float um, it's so burdened down with complexity and requirements. Um, I should say there are concrete boats in real life that float, but I think the metaphor still stands. You wouldn't expect to build a boat of concrete and have it float. Um, and when I asked him why, he said, because that way, when it fails, it's not our fault. And it was devastating to me to hear that, um, Veterans need their benefits. Uh, they, they, especially at the time, they needed access to them much faster, terribly. We had, I think, 18 veterans committing suicide a day, in part because they weren't getting the care that they needed. And I was really dispirited by that lack of um, responsibility on his part. I did also understand what he meant. Um, and that that this is the way in sometimes government projects are structured. Jen, Jen can we stay with VA? Because I do want to pick up your book is filled with some really positive stories as well. And and one of them, though it started out as sort of a negative, but it really turned into a quite compelling story. I was hoping I'm going to jump ahead to the VA forms and how they didn't test the, 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 the form worked outside the building. But you, you tell a great story about how it, uh, it actually vet helps this. I was hoping you can share with us that. We had a team, this is around the same time, actually, um, we had a team that was sort of also proto-USDS working in the VA. It was led by Marina Nitza, who was the first, um, who was a chief technology officer at the time and, and um, a colleague of mine. And she had brought in this team that was going to improve the online forms. Um, and uh, basically, they went and tested them. Um, 
outside the building, they used their own laptops to try to apply for veterans health care, and they found that it didn't work. Um, and the reason it didn't work is that the one of the requirements was that it work on a particular combination of Internet Explorer and Adobe Reader. Uh, both of the, the versions of those were both outdated versions, but it didn't really matter. The point is you had to have exactly this version of IE and exactly uh, had to be your uh, Adobe Reader had to be configured exactly right or it didn't launch. And of course, that requirement came from how the computers inside the VA were set up. So essentially everybody in the VA could launch the form just fine. Almost everybody outside the VA could not. But uh, the team went out and, you know, well, first they went to VA leadership and said, we've got to fix this. And they said, we can't, you know, here is a requirements document. It's been signed off, you know, with the IVV folks have signed off on it. It's a closed, it's closed business. There's, there's technically nothing wrong here. Um, so they went out and found a veteran named Dominic who um, had been trying to apply for veterans benefits, for healthcare benefits for several years and had tried dozens and dozens of times. And they recorded the audio and the screen capture of him trying and his just delightful and sort of funny and sometimes off color uh, narration of what it was like to be him and to try yet again for this to work. And they brought it back to VA leadership and insisted that they watch this, this little video. And that moment of being able to see it through the eyes of a veteran changed everything. You know, I'll also say it matters who the leadership it was. You know, it was Sloan Gibson, a fantastic public servant who said, okay, I don't care what the paperwork says. We have to fix this. Oh, and by the way, get me that man's name. We're getting him signed up for health, health insurance today. Um, and, you know, that I think struck, kicked off a pretty important and valuable transformation that the VA is still going through. The VA is still getting better and better every day because they're using tactics like this and they're centering the people like Dominic instead of the paperwork. Jen, you open your book about recent work you've done in California with the department, uh, I believe it was the Employee Development Department, EDD. Can you tell us the story of the burn down chart and what lessons can be learned from that story? And, and more importantly, why is throwing money, resources, and staff at underperforming government agencies not exactly the right path and can potentially exacerbate issues? Sure. So this, the context here is that it's July 2020. We're several months into the pandemic, and a lot of people have applied for unemployment insurance, um, many more than um, the departments of labor and states all across the country could handle. I get called in to help. Uh, by running, co-chairing a task force by uh, Governor Newsom. We've got to figure out why so many people have applied for unemployment insurance and haven't gotten it. Now, turns out there were, you know, a number of things that were going on. But uh, one thing in particular we discovered when my colleague um, kept talking to the claims processors, trying to unwind, you know, where the bottlenecks were. And one of them kept saying, well, I'm not sure about the answer to that. I'm the new guy. And about the 10th time he said that, she said, well, I'm sorry, how long have you been here? 
And he said, I've only been here 17 years. The guys who really know how this works have been here 25 years or more. Now, I am not talking about the tech people, though I think that's true of them too. I'm talking about claims processors. And that speaks to an enormous complexity in the law and policy and regulation and processes and procedures that govern how unemployment insurance gets delivered. Some of that comes from the feds. Some of that's California. It's specific to each state. But in any case, you know, you really spoke to where the bottleneck was. Um, the idea that you could suddenly have more claims processors is disputed by the fact that they, to be useful at all, both practically and legally, because they're they're supposed to have gone through these different levels of training and passed these different exams to get to point where they can process these claims. You have to have been there for two decades. In the meantime, the governor and the legislature had sort of opened up the pocketbooks and said, the, obviously, the way to solve this problem is just to hire people to process the claims. And we had, in the state of California, hired 5,000 people and brought them over to EDD. And what was happening is that the people like the new guy and the other folks with 25 years of experience were spending all of their time onboarding, training, answering emails from these 5,000 people instead of doing the one thing that they and only they could do, which is process the claims that weren't able to be processed automatically. And you know, it really showed that, um, that really as much as every governor wanted to blame COBOL, right? COBOL is the language from 1959 that's still present in all of these systems. In fact, in California, the COBOL pipeline did quite well. That's how we paid hundreds of thousands of people. The problem was that a system that that's complex is simply not going to scale. So there's, there's a lot more to the story about um, identity verification, which we needed to put in there. But ultimately, you know, I, I think we have to really look at the complexity of the policy and how it is accrued over time and never sort of rationalized or simplified if we're going to make systems that scale. Jen, what did you mean and what do you mean when you wrote that the government culture eats policy for breakfast? Well, there's a standard line in business that says um, culture eats strategy. And what that means is that you can have the best strategy in the world, but when the people execute it and the ways in which they execute it will make more difference to the outcome than your actual strategy. In government, it's policy that gets eaten because we can come up with fantastic policies but very often the risk aversion that is present in government and sometimes dominates will get us almost the opposite outcome or a very different outcome than the policy intended. A good example of this, I think, is the Paperwork Reduction Act, which, of course, was designed to reduce the burden on citizens of having to fill out forms for the government. But the way it's been implemented, it is, I believe, increasing that burden um, you are supposed to go get approval from OIRA, the what is it, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, before you ask, you know, questions. But in today's digital world, there is a practice called user research that involves asking a small number of people a small number of questions, or sometimes not even doing that, but simply watching them use a website or a digital service or fill out a form and noting where they are having trouble so that we can streamline it and reduce the burden. But when you take that uh, very, very strict interpretation, or not even strict, but like really a maximalist overreaching interpretation 
of the PRA and say, you have to go through a Y rate, even to do that user research. It makes user research almost impossible to do. Nobody can wait nine months to a year and go through a whole process that goes literally through the White House in order to do what those wonderful public servants did when they watched Dominic the veteran try to apply for health care. Uh, if they had had to wait nine months to do that, they simply wouldn't have done it. Um, and it's absolutely not against the law, against PRA to go do that. But the culture says, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. I'm the PR uh, a desk officer in the agency. I'm going to say, well, I get that you're saying that this is excluded from the PR, which it is, by the way. But to protect myself, I will run this up the flagpole anyway. In the meantime, just wait. Um, I had a friend complain about this the other day. She was already doing user research over at the um, CFPB the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, but somebody decided that they, that needed to be reviewed and so sent it to OIRA. OIRA's response was, nope, we're going to have to put this in the federal register and look and wait for comments, which basically is saying we want comments from the public on whether or not and how we can ask for comments uh, from the public. And in the meantime, there will be no comments from the public. We will do no user research and this is extremely frustrating if your job is to reduce the burden of paperwork on the American public. Um, there are many, many other examples of this, but um, I think cybersecurity falls into this. FISMA is a pretty good law. But when we interpret it to say, don't choose some of the uh, controls, cybersecurity controls that are going to be best for your application, but you have to do all 300 of them. That takes time away from the thing that is most important for cybersecurity, which is testing and making smart decisions about which controls are most important. But that, again, happens when the culture says it's better to just be safe than sorry. And, oh, by the way, I don't really understand what this means because it's in the digital realm. And so I'm going to definitely run it up the flagpole. And I think that's ultimately why we really need to focus on changing the culture of government because these new policies tend to fall into that trap where the culture sort of mangles them. And what comes out the other end is exactly the opposite of what's intended. Why does government culture undervalue the importance of policy implementation? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors with Jennifer Palka, 
author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. So I was wondering if you could spend some time telling us about, right now in in your book, you're ready to leave federal service. I, I believe I got the timeline there. And you're thinking about how I can create the U.S. digital service, or at least give a template for creating it. And that's the playbook you were developing. Could you tell us more about that story and your work with Henry? Henry also is a pseudonym. Um, yes, alongside trying to get USDS stood up, I was working on a playbook inspired by what the folks at the GDS had done, a beautiful set of design principles that were really driving change. And I wanted the USDS playbook to be as simple and clear and plain language. And I was assigned a partner who was more government-y than me on the uh, logic that I didn't totally understand how government worked yet, which was a fair challenge. And this guy was so eager and so diligent and thorough. But we were bad partners in a sense because I had written sort of this one pager and asked for his help simplifying. I wanted it to be less than a page, uh, you know, just bullet points. And he took it and he said, great, I'll, I'll, I'll make this work in government and make it understandable government people. And what he gave me back was 70 pages. And I said, no, 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 let's go the other direction. And then he gave me back something even longer. And I really wanted to figure out how I could convey to him the importance to me of making it simpler and clearer. So I asked him to meet with me over at GSA, which had a lot at that time, you know, a real culture of these sticky notes on the walls that I talked about before. Um, And I thought it would sort of convey this sense of new approaches. And I was going to meet with him all, all afternoon long until I really got through to him why this was important. And I wanted to tell him the story of the burial plot, which is that One of the many, many questions that we ask people applying for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, um, is whether they own a burial plot. Uh, This is only true in some states, but in California, they asked at the time, we're asking 212 different questions of these folks. And it just comes off as really intrusive and burdensome. And many of these questions are insulting. And so I, I passionately told him this story so that he would see what I meant And he looked at me and said, of course, I know that. I wrote those regs. And I felt awful. I mean, I was trying to bring this guy over to my side, and instead I insulted him profoundly. But it also really brought home to me that he was not malicious in any way. He was not trying to drive people crazy with all these questions. He was simply trying to do what he felt Congress had asked. Congress said, let's assess their assets. And in his mind, a burial plot is an asset. So let's include it. That's the most thorough possible way to do what Congress intended. And I I want to have a lot of empathy and respect for people like this guy who's uh, I call Henry because they're, they're doing the wrong thing, but for the right reasons. And if I think we if we can reach them and explain to them why Congress actually wants us not to ask a burial plot question, we will really bring people along and have much greater alignment about this 
these these approaches that will make government make sense to a person. Yeah, kind of do that in a story. I, the, the next story I want you to talk, talk about is the Facebook for Docs fiasco, because I think that kind of gets to the point of of correcting the ship and getting the right interpretations. Can you tell us more about this? And why do you think, given this anecdote, why do you think policymakers at the agency level tend to make policy more complicated than even Congress they've intended? The Facebook for Doctors story goes back to the team implementing MACRA, creating quality payment program at CMS. There was a provision in the law for virtual groups. In other words, it can be advantageous for doctors not to file as um, sole practitioners, but to you know aggregate their quality data up with others, and they may end up getting paid more. And so there was a provision that allowed them to file as a virtual group. And somebody inside CMS had decided that that meant that we had to make it possible to find each other and file as a virtual group. And this was being called Facebook for Doctors. And Natalie Cates, who was on the USDS team, detailed over to CMS at the time to help, said, you know, that's going to take up a lot of resources that need to be spent on the core thing here, this is a huge undertaking and a um, a huge distraction. And guess what? We've been asking doctors and nobody wants it. She actually went all the way back to Congress, talked to the folks who had written the law, and they agreed, no, that's not what we meant at all. Um, in fact, the provision had gone in there because one of the vendors had wanted to make sure that it was possible because they wanted to create the affordances for people to match if they wanted to. In fact, the people who'd asked for the provision had not only not intended that CMS create a Facebook for doctors, they really didn't want CMS to create a Facebook for doctors because they wanted to do it. So, you know, again, I I won't go into like all of the fights that needed to happen, but eventually this team was able to find a different lawyer to interpret the regulation, the law and regulation differently. And they did not end up making a Facebook for doctors. What they did is they put a little thing on the website that said, if you want to be connected with another doctor, let us know. And something like three people even clicked on it. Those people were easily handled um, without the creation of an entire social network. Mm. Why is it so important to start with a simple, with a working simple system rather than attempt to build a complex system to serve everyone that crashes and ends up serving no one. Right. So Gall's Law is this idea that long predates, you know, this book. Um, It's from the 70s that says everything that all systems that work, I'm sorry, all complex systems that work started with something simple and became more complex. Um, And then I derive from that another law that I call Burns Law after my Burn, who is a fantastic public servant um, at places like the FCC and the CFPB, who says most government tech projects could cost 10% of what they do and still provide 80% of the functionality. Um, it, it does not mean that they won't get to that 100% of the functionality if it's determined that that functionality is needed. Like with Facebook for Doctors, I think it was pretty clear just was never needed at all. Um, But you can get there if you have something that can be tested really well with real people, not just load tested to make sure the website will stay up in a a website framework, um, but tested with people to see if they understand what's being asked of them and they know where to click and they have the data that you're asking for. Um, 
it is much better to build something that has less functionality, but actually works for people in all of those dimensions, and then add the support for the other cases as you go along. You certainly do run into complexity as you add, but you will be starting from a much stronger base. And this really is how good products are built both inside and outside government. It is not illegal to do this in government. And it it is um, really, I think, acknowledged as the way to do things um, in the consumer world. So as we close, Jen, I was wondering what skills are most needed from your perspective when we talk about tech talent and government? And why is digital literacy so important for policymakers? You know, I'm I'm a little out there um, on the digital literacy piece. I, of course, it would be great if all of our members of Congress understood how the internet works. But I actually think it's more important for them to shed this waterfall thinking than it is for them to understand, you know, something technical. Um, I, and I mean, and partly because I'm not that technical, right? Like, I think what they need to do is have the right people at the table when they're making decisions and listen to them. You don't need tech knowledge. You need to be able to borrow tech knowledge. But you, right now, most policymakers don't invite implementers or technologists to the table when they're thinking about what they actually want to write in a law or policy. They talk to them afterwards. When it's too late to change it, uh, and we've already created conditions under which it's going to be very hard to implement that technology. So, you know, digital digital literacy is nice. Um, changing who's at the table and who's in the conversation and making sure that whoever's at the bottom of the waterfall is actually speaking to the people at the top is a more critical change that I would like to see. And I think through that, you will get more digital literacy. Um, and that'll be just a really nice thing to have, but it is less important. Mm-hmm. So Jen, how can folks get a copy of your book? Um, you can go to your local bookstore and ask for it. It comes out June 13th, but I'm sure they'll be glad to pre-order it for you. You can go on Amazon or a bookshop, um, or if you see me in DC, hit me up and ask me, and I'll have a copy on me and I'll give it to you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Jen, I really enjoyed the read. I got to tell you, it's really well-written, compelling, kept me engaged. And I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule today to come and talk about your book. It was a delight to talk to you, Michael. Thank you so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Jennifer Palka, author of Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan-Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.